Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. All right, we are live. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, folks. Wherever in the heck in the world you are, it's the one and only V, the Grill Economist. And we have with us the one and only man who needs no introduction. Uh, well, folks, if you haven't done this already, I don't know what you're waiting for. Besides subscribing to Rogue News, what you need to do is get over to theseriousreport.com. That's spelled S-I-R-I-U-S, theseriousreport.com, and subscribe to Paul's daily. I like to call it the intelligence briefing. You know, if you're like the president, you, you, you're always wondering, what does a, what does a presidential daily briefing look like? Well, it's basically the serious report, but it's given to you via audio for $4.75, $4.75 a month, less than a price of a venti mucolata mucolula mucacino over at Starbucks. Much cheaper, folks. And you're getting the daily briefing. You're getting the day-to-day, the play-by-play of what's going on. And what you need to do, folks, is the, the you need to gather information, not only things that are outside of your spectrum. Heck, you might even have to read things that you might not agree with and then file it away and see what happens. That's how you collect data. That's how you rummage through data. And there's no better place than to get really good information than theseriousreport.com. I'm telling you right now, folks, it's the holy trinity right here. Okay? You have the serious report. You have the hat trick letter. You got rogue news. It's the holy trinity. It's the holy trinity. That's what you need in your life. Go there, theseriesreport.com. And with that being said, London Paul, sir, how are you? Good morning, V. Yeah, I'm very well. And yourself? Paul, I'm hanging in there. It's Labor Day. Uh, I, I don't know what I'm doing today as of yet. And uh, I'm just, uh, you know, just, you know, just uh, recovering from a very busy weekend. Um, and that's about it. Uh, pretty uneventful, Paul. Pretty uneventful. Did you hear about the 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 uh, leader of the Donbass uh, rebel group getting assassinated? Yeah, actually, we could go into that in masses of detail if you like. What well, I, I covered it a little on. bit earlier in the morning because uh, you know you know where he got killed. Well, it was a place called the Separ Cafe. It's in the center of Donetsk. Yeah. Right. You know, the Separ Cafe means the separatist cafe. Yeah, I, I, I actually think we are going to the separatist cafe. Yeah, but you know, I <laughs> there, there was there's unwritten rules even in this engagement, and uh, and the Ukrainians have crossed a red line, and there is major hell going yeah. on. Yeah, we'll get into that later. So, where, where do but you? Yeah, want to we start can ball? we can come to that. Yeah, well, <laughs> CJ sent me something quite interesting because I often say to me anything you'd like to discuss and. Uh, have a chat and he he sent me something which is which is this kind of anti sort of new silk road belt and road initiative um, sure. emphasis which is now everyone's trying to convince the world that you know the wheels have fallen off the belt and road initiative all these nations want to leave uh, 
because you know there's all these serious bottlenecks there's all these massive debt loads that governments are incurring and there's this huge backlash and in fact no one no one in the world would have any would want to be part of the belt road initiative and everyone's looking to back out of it but of course this is in keeping with the general anti-russian sentiment that's sort of erupted since you know the trade war escalation and but then it goes back for many years that china's bankrupt china's debt ridden china's building all these ghost cities which of course they're not they're building them because they're going to be populated by people as the belt road initiative grows and expands and already some of those ghost cities are now populated with people and the list goes on and on you know china's the most censored nation on the planet well i can speak from experience having been there i had no censorship i could use skype i could use the internet had no problems whatsoever so but can you use google <laughs> i did actually try <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but you know, I'm not. And you know, before anyone suggests, I'm saying China is a perfect country. I'm not suggesting, but anything of the sort. But compared to a lot of Western nations, it's in far better shape than than they are. And uh, and of course, what's coming out now is this. Every week, there's some article somewhere going. Well, you know, all these nations have got grave concerns about the uh, the Belt Road Initiative. I mean, I mean, listing the U.S. is absolutely pointless and. Because the U.S. is anti-Belt Road Initiative for all the reasons we know, and they've, you know, mentioned nations like Japan and India, saying they you know, they've got all these serious reservations about it. Well, if that were true, why are they sort of jumping on the bandwagon now and looking to join it, and or have joined it? And, and of course, they've highlighted the recent uh, situation with Malaysia is a great example where, on on paper, they cancelled a number of projects saying the country could no longer afford it. And, of course, that's absolutely true. But uh, you know, we only know recently what's happened. They've deposed a disgraced leader in Malaysia. And there's, and there's a realisation, look, we're going to have to sort out our finances. And China's fully supportive of this, but they still remain committed to the Belt Road Initiative. They're just saying, look, we can't afford this, but at the moment we need to scale back, and we need, but we still want to be part of it. Can, you know, maybe we can renegotiate the, the rail system link and how it's going to be financed. And that's the reality. But the West spinning this, that Malaysia's walked away from it. They've cancelled all the projects and they're not interested in it. And, of course, they've highlighted nations like Thailand and Sri Lanka and Nepal saying, well, they've stopped all these projects. They've scaled them back and they're renegotiating projects with Beijing. Well, that's what's called being adults in an adult world. There are going to be times when governments are going to say, look, we can't afford this, or we'd like to renegotiate a contract. Maybe we want to do something different. Maybe we don't feel there's an economic benefit. And China's going to well, that's perfectly fine. That's what a multipolar world's all about. But the West's so used to having the US hegemony approach, which is you do as we say when we say it, and, and that's the end of it. And Of course, China doesn't operate like that. And Pakistan's another example where... Right. There's a new prime minister, Imran Khan, who is looking at a very different way of, of the Belt Road Initiative working because you know, inherited, should we say, unstable economic, um, or sorry, less than stable economy in Pakistan. And also, there is corruptions being right. But what he's actually said in reality is, I'm 100% committed to the China-Pakistan economic corridor. And of course, yeah. to not do would be economic suicide for any uh, incumbent or incoming Pakistan prime minister. And 
you know, they highlight so many other examples. I mean, they're talking about nations who are who are fiercely against the Belt and Road Initiative, but they're highlighting, highlighting exile leaders of opposition parties. Meanwhile, I mean, Maldives is a great example. In the meantime, Maldives is signing deals with the Chinese left, right, and center. So, yeah. you know, and it's all part of the idea of trying to convince the world, you know, the yuan's gaining no adoption, the dollar's strong, you know, the yuan's become weaker. Well, the fact is the yuan's tracking the price of gold. That's the reality. That's what China's doing. It's not perceived weakness in the yuan at all. They're tracking the price of gold and have been for a number of months and something we first spoke about, you know, some time ago. And then, of course, the other problem is you've got think tanks in Washington who are saying, you know, oh, there's all these serious concerns about the sovereign debt of, of, of uh, Beijing. What they, of course, failed to realize is Beijing's paid for all the Belt Road Initiative with, with ca cash. It's not debt driven. Yes, nations nations are obviously incurring debt, but the debt levels are significantly less than um, than what the IMF. <laughs> I mean, look mm -hmm. at Argentina is the next country that's going to be raked and pillaged by the IMF when they accept an again. enormous bailout again. Yeah, again. <laughs> it, it, it's yeah. like they don't learn their lesson, and we knew that the current. Uh, uh, Prime Minister, President, whatever the hell you want to call him, of Argentina, is a former, former Goldman boy, nonetheless, Paul. A former Goldman boy. <laughs> what can we expect? Jeez, well, yeah, exactly. yeah and, and that's the problem. That it's all these comparisons that, you know, the Belt Road Initiative's just U.S. hegemony mark, too, with all the usual suspects like the IMF, the World and Bank. And that's where they get wrong. And you know, you know the and worst thing, yeah, exactly. Paul? Have you seen this YouTube channel called China Uncensored? No, I've not seen it. Oh honest. my god, man! It's it's like I I grit my teeth. I'm just like, oh god. I mean, just just the the guy just doesn't get it. All he does is lambast China all day, twenty four seven. You know, it just it just I'm like such half truths. It's 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 incredible, really. But go ahead. But yeah, but it's it's the it's the age old thing, of course. That you know, from the Chinese perspective, they. You know, some of they've written off quite a lot of the debt in Africa, for example. They've restructured debt. They've given people debt jubilees, so they've got time where they don't have to repay the debt or, you know, the debt's interest-free. And, of course, they're getting all the usual criticism, which is exactly what the IMF does, is that countries get, you know, are massively indebted. They, they get loans, then the assets stick, and, you know, nation's assets are stripped, and they buy them, you know, for cents on the dollar effectively and that's what they're accusing the chinese of doing where you know which is absolutely ridiculous and the chinese have countered this by saying look all we have here is all this wonderful money that western countries invest is you know clean and whilst everything that china's done is this sinister trap where they're trying to right. destroy nations well that's absolutely not the case because here's the thing if if it was a western nation who'd signed contracts with the malaysian who then tried to walk away, they'd probably sue them and then force the contracts and then bankrupt them. Yeah, and seize their assets or, or, or and bankrupt worse. them. Or have complete overthrow again with some assassinations in tow. Uh, that's exactly what they would do. This, I mean, my God, Malaysia would be turned into... You, you'd have uh, um, the entire Indonesian debacle happening in Malaysia. You know, that, that's exactly what, what would happen. You know, East Timor in Malaysia. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and of course, that when that, you know, China's damned if they do and damned if they don't. They're damned because they're carrying out uh, you know, this Belt and Road Initiative, which, I mean, how many years has it taken the West to wake up and realize what it actually means? I mean, it's staggering that it's been going on under their noses for longer than, you know, than, you know, we've been discussing it. I mean, in 2013, the start, I mean, uh, the amount of references we've talked about, never mind, that's only a small part of it. It's it's staggering, the extent of the development. And it's only sort of about the last three months or something since the whole China trade war came to the fore that suddenly they're waking up going, oh, hang on. Well, now we know what is. Now we just got to discredit it at every end of term. But it's part of this whole anti-Chinese rhetoric that's now coming out of the Western media. And unfortunately, that's largely being fueled by the this trade war with the US. And, and we're not going to labor that point too much. I think I've made my point. It's a very foolish strategy and something that Trump should never have entertained. And, and I stand by that because it's already hurting the US internally, economically, and it will not benefit anyone. But ultimately... You know, China will will win win through because they're in the far stronger economic position to weather this storm and they can diversify their trade with other nations. And that's something that the US doesn't have that same luxury. And of course the US is heavily indebted, even though people try to convince us otherwise. And I think that leads on to a point because all I increasingly and I have probably maybe explained this clearly enough, but is this idea that the dollar will survive and there is there's no problem for the US and and then of course there's the issue of the unaccounted for 21 trillion which I absolutely agree is correct and the analysis done is spot on but it only it doesn't cover every single facet of of Washington so the chances are it could be considerably greater than 21 trillion that's missing it may be 25, it may be 30, I don't know, it could be 40, who knows. But I think it's it's considerably north than 21. The problem is, it's debt. It's just paper that was printed. It's not, yeah. it's not real money. So at some point, if you want those dollars to come home, what's it going to do? It's going to cause hyperinflation in the US. Yeah. And that, so uh, people seem to be thinking this 21 trillion is going to wipe out the debt. Well, it's not going to wipe out the debt absolutely not and in, and in the process the argument then is well okay so the us loses the reserve currency it has to adopt a new currency yes well that, that's what will happen but it's going to be devalued and the other problem is that who's going to buy its debt and what's going to happen to us interest rates because us oh, would struggle oh, uh, well certain yeah. pundits are saying that that you're wrong and i'm wrong and jim willie's wrong and it's you know, the, 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 there's so many people right now that are buying U.S. debt, Paul. We're completely wrong. So many people are buying it right now, Paul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the point of fact is there's nobody's bought U.S. foreign debt for years. It's the exchange stabilization fund that's buying Correct. the debt and convincing everyone the world continues to buy it, and they're not. Correct. And But the thing is, you imagine what would happen to the U.S. economy if interest rates were at 6 7% with all the debt that's swelling around. Oh, you, you'd have a car wreck that makes a 100-car pileup look like a walk in the park. Absolutely, and yeah. and that's the reality. So we talk about realities, and, and and I'm sorry, that's the absolute reality of this. So, 
the idea that this 20 missing 21 trillion is going to resolve the us's problem well the chances are it's long since being spent but it was it was just printed money i mean it's rather like all the banks have the banks have been bailed out to trillions of dollars more than than anyone realizes again it's just money that never existed so at some point when all the, and, that, and that's why dollar rejection is so bad for the us because at some point all the dollars come out and when they do that's going to create hyperinflation and, and I, there has to be a limit to, to what the esf could really absorb and i think they're probably already you know at their limits at this juncture well it's difficult the, the, i mean that Really, the exchange stabilization fund collapses when the, the dollar demand in the world disappears. And then, of right. course, increasingly, the dollar demand's dropping off. And, and it's far more significant than, than, you know, than people are being let, led to believe, not just in terms of it's obvious nations are de-dollarizing and they're having currency swaps, but general trade in the dollar is dropping on an annual basis and has been for a number of years. And but there comes a point that when the dollar is rejected globally, which, of course, all these trade wars and 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 the fact that now every time any nation does something the U.S. doesn't like, they're threatening to sanction them. I mean, it's like the Indians buying the S four hundred. We're going to sanction you. If it's like Turkey, you're buying the S four hundred. We're going to sanction you. Like every nation that doesn't want to want do anything that the U.S. doesn't like, the sanctioning them. But in the process, it's killing the dollar by you know it's the death by a thousand cuts scenario, and that's precisely what's happening. And and there comes a point when the dollar gets rejected. It doesn't matter what the exchange stabilization fund does because no one will take accept dollars. No one accepts dollars. It's game over. What what you can't pay for something that no one will accept anymore. Right. Right. You know, people. You know, people wonder. Well, you know, the ESF. How are they doing it? Well, no one talks about the ESF. It, it's it's working in collusion with facilities like Euroclear and Clearstream, and uh, you know, it, it's pure. What's the word I'm looking for, man? Two card Monty, three card Monty. That's exactly what's <laughs> happening. Unreal. Yeah, yeah, and of course, effectively, the exchange stabilization fund is the one that dictates. Federal Reserve policy. Everyone blames, goes on about the central banks. It's not the central banks are just conduits to do as they're told. They're not. They don't make. They're not decision makers. And then, of course, the, in theory, people will read it and go, "But the exchange stabilization funds controlled by the U.S. Treasury." Really? No, it isn't. Absolutely not. It's a law unto itself and does precisely what it wants and how it wants. Now, there are certain facets to do with. With the ESF that you'd say, well, actually, it makes sense, but its but its ultimate aim is to preserve and and make sure that the dollar doesn't die effectively, and therefore it's deemed as a matter of national security because of the nature of what it does. So, okay, we're covering old ground here to some extent, so we won't labour it too much. But it's extremely important that people are aware of the reality that the U.S. dollar is not going to survive. I mean, and. You know, I still get people who just get very angry about it and get in touch and say, you know, this is ridiculous. Well, I always ask the question, well, tell me how it will survive. And, of course, you don't get any response. So, but, but, but that being said, the, the, the whole point at the moment, going back to the thing with the Belt and Road, everything's about trying to 
make the Chinese economy seem weak, that the Chinese economy is going to collapse, the yuan's, there's no you know, uptake globally and the dollar remains supreme. And that's why everything has to be done to, keep the, to preserve the illusion of the strength of the dollar, which is why, of course, what happens, gold and silver get smashed. And some interesting points regarding gold and silver that are worth mentioning that the moment gold and this is purely in paper terms has a record number of shorts the converse is that silver amongst commercial traders actually is net long for the first time since records began which is what in 1986 this is pretty telling that there's this huge sort of discrepancy between the gold and silver market in terms of paper but when people say well why is the paper price, you know, why is the price of gold and silver getting smashed when you keep telling me that the demand for physical metal is so high? Well, because they're completely separate markets. The paper market, they just dump paper contracts to whatever, however many hundreds of billions and trillions over the last few years they've done to keep the price low. Why? Because it's to preserve the illusion that the dollar's strong and to make people believe that gold and silver are poor investments and as serve no purpose and they're barbarous relics that no one has should have any interest in. Meanwhile, in the East, the retail uh, sector is buoyant for gold and silver, but for commercial, in commercial sense, for big traders, the demand for, for physical gold and silver is off scale. It is ginormous. And they, they don't care what the, the price is because they don't negotiate price based on spot price. And if the spot price gets smashed, they'll go, well, fine, we'll just buy it cheaper. But there's no correlation between the paper price and the physical price because for every physical ounce of gold and silver, there's, well, who knows how many hundreds of ounces of paper that exists, but eventually the paper market will disappear, rather like when the dollar disappears, because the truth is all paper assets in their current form will disappear. That's why we have gold-backed currencies, why we'll have a return to sound monetary policy. Yep. Precisely because all these paper asset derivatives are all going to get flushed because they're worthless pieces of paper. So don't I don't get despondent because the price of gold and silver gets smacked. It's got no, there's no correlation to the demand and supply for physical metal, quite the contrary. But what's happened in the West is people are now getting convinced well, owning physical metal is, is a bad thing, and uh, you shouldn't own it because, of, you know, every, look, the, what, look what's happened to the price. Well, it bears no re relation to, to physical uh, supply and demand, as we said. And before anyone says I'm talking, I don't have any vested interest. I don't, I don't work in the gold and silver market in terms of buying and selling it, so I'm not trying to tell people to buy something. I'm just pointing out the facts. But I have no vested interest. If people can do what they like, it's their choice. And I'm not here to tell anyone or advise anyone to do anything. I'm just stating the case that just because the paper price gets smashed, it doesn't bear any correlation or re resemblance to what's going on in the physical markets. And the, and the physical markets, on, I have a very good understanding because of the fact of the reality of what's going on. And I'm not really that concerned about the retail market where you, know, you and I and other people might buy it. 50, 100 ounces of silver or a few ounces of gold. That's not the business end of where the physical markets are really taking shape and, and the reality of what's been going on for a considerable period of time. But there's no doubt about it that gold production in the West is all going, like it has been for years, it all ends up in London, 
or in Switzerland. It gets re refined and then it ends up heading east. And that big drain from west to east has been going on to a larger or lesser extent for six or more years in a major way. It was going on before that, but significantly so. And at one point, there was a thousand tons a month heading east. It's not doing that anymore because the supply is not there. But that's the reality. And, you, and those stats are there. All the metal is produced in the U.S., all the gold's heading east. And the demand in the U.S. isn't great. The demand in the U.K. is not great. And the reason is because everyone's being convinced that it's a barbarous relic that no one should buy and it's worthless. And, you know, you have to worship at the altar of fiat currency without realizing history shows paper currencies die. None of them survived, especially not reserve currencies. Absolutely. Paul, um, with what's going on also, um, you want to talk about how the U.S. is reaching out to things. Look at what China is doing. You mentioned this before where they forgave you know, a lot of the debt uh, in Africa. What exactly is the U.S. doing in Africa? <laughs> Well, you know, let, let we, you know, we don't necessarily have to go into any sort of, you know, discussion about what China's doing in Africa, because we've obviously discussed that in great detail. But yeah, from the US perspective, I mean, there's there's Africom, which obviously is the the US African Command. Now, when it was created. They, they came up with this very blasé statement which you know, says that we've got no plans to establish bases or have any military personnel on the ground in, in Africa. Well, U.S. military bases now in all its various guises in Africa is around 50 in number. They've got troops. I, I, I'm not going to list all the nations, but there's well over a dozen nations. I mean, there's nations like Egypt and Djibouti and Kenya and... Somalia and Sudan, and the list goes on and on and on. They run drone surveillance programs. They have all these cross-border raids and intelligence. And whilst they claim responsibility for, for you know, development in public health and professional and security training and humanitarian um, tasks, the interesting thing is this shows the extent of what AFRICOM is, that you've got officials from the State Department, Homeland Security, energy, commerce, and the list goes on, who are all actively involved in AFRICOM. And then you've got military attaches that outnumber diplomats at many embassies across Africa. So, And really, a lot of it went unnoticed until, well, as near as, damn it, a year ago. We had the case where there was four U.S. soldiers who were killed in Niger, and then people went, hang on, I didn't think we had any military operations in these countries. You know, what the hell's going on? And then a service person was uh, died in Somalia about two, two, three months ago. And that raised more eyebrows saying, excuse me, you know, what's going on? Now, the Defense Department's going, well, actually, we're going to amend plans in terms of all our special operations in Africa. And we're going to reassign troops to other regions as though you're know, trying to downplay what's actually going on um, inside Africa. And, you know, because our priorities, we've got to defeat terrorist groups. In other parts of the world, you know, or well, hopefully not like they haven't defeated terrorist groups in Syria. And but then the, the question is, they say all this, but they're continuing to build more and more infrastructure. The construction work go, goes on, I mean, and bases are remaining operational. 
and the numbers on these bases keep rising. So they're actually completely contradictory. I think right now there's about 131 forward operating bases in Africa and growing. Yeah. And of course, you know, they've built this large, huge drone base in Niger. Yep. I mean, and these drones have a, you know, range of over a thousand miles. So, I mean, they're not, that shows the, the true intent of what they're doing. And they're supposed to be getting on for maybe, you know, eight, nine hundred US troops in Niger, as well as this drone base. And, uh, and of course, the, that US military presence is the second largest in Africa, of course, after Djibouti. But then they rephrase all these things going, well, actually, it's just a forward operating. Uh, site, but you know, in 2014, the US signed a, I think it was a two-decade lease with the Djibouti government and committed to spending well over a billion dollars to modernize and expand facilities. And and the US signs all these military agreements, like with the US and Ghana. But there's actually an interesting thing that, um, with regards to opening this drone base up in Niger, is that it's actually drone attacks that are launched regularly, as we know, in Africa, are actually in violation of the U.S. law because there was the authorization for the use of military force that was uh, ironically adopted after 9-11. And it states that the president's authorized to use force against the planners of those attacks and those who harbor them. However, the act does not apply to groups operating in Africa. So every time they launch these drone attacks, it's, it's actually in violation of U.S. law. Never mind whether it's in violation of any other laws in the process. Now, someone in, a number of people have looked up through the Freedom of Information Act to see what, you know, what is AFRICOM really doing. And they found contradictory statements about the scale of you know, U.S. bases around the world, including all these bases in, Afri in AFRICOM in maybe two dozen African nations. And these you know, construction sites continue. I mean... A huge expense. I mean, there's always money available for the military. But what about allocating some money to rebuild infrastructure in the US? I know we've labored that point, but it's a very strong point worth making, particularly in the context of what AFRICOM is actually doing. So the argument in certain quarters is, well, you know, the US is just building this enormous military infrastructure and apparatus, presumably, and the belief that you know, at some point in the future, we're going to launch some large-scale ground war. And, you know, as, as unfortunately the U.S. and its coalition partners have done for decades and beyond in the past. Now, this explains, having said all that, why we're seeing an increasing military presence um, of largely Russia, but also China to some extent. And why, in, in stark contrast, that all the U.S. is doing is offering military solutions to things and building bases and what's china doing china's not doing you know there's some small military presence they've got a base in djibouti and but largely it's just about trade and commerce and building relations on the basis of a multipolar world but the u.s remains committed to to building this huge military infrastructure in in the african continent largely unknown to people and also as we said they're conducting drone attacks. Who knows how often these drone attacks happen because largely they're not reported. But they're actually in violation of the U.S. law itself, which actually stipulates they have no authority to do so. And, and this starkly contrasts the U.S. unipolar sort of uh, U.S. hegemony view of the world. And then you contrast that really starkly with what China's doing. 
and and Russia to a to a lesser extent in in Africa, but certainly even now the Russians are signing not military agreements but also economic agreements uh, with African nations, and and that's becoming widespread, uh, and and has been for a number of years. But unfortunately, this is again is my concern with the Trump administration is that there hasn't been a curtailment of this. It's carried on and arguably it's escalated. And again, it's just this dysfunctional U.S. foreign policy that, I mean, it's classic playbook neocon mentality. That, that's exactly what neocons do. They, they build military bases. They threaten nations militarily. Unfortunately, to a large extent, that, you know, and that's what the Trump administration is continuing to do in Africa by by covert means. Now, it arguably people can say, well, how much is Trump actually aware of the reality of what's going on? Well, that's a good question. But if you assign spending to to a continent, then someone needs to say, okay, what am I what am I actually spending this money on? But it's the same old problem with with Iran. It's it's really staggers me that people still believe that somehow. U.S. policy towards Iran is so radically different from the decades of U.S. policy towards Iran, and it's absolutely no different. It's economically sanctioning them to try and uh, put them into oblivion uh, and, and have a regime change directly or indirectly as a result of it. Nothing's changed. It's exactly the same. People can be, it can be dressed up however anyone wants to believe it, but that's the reality of it. And walking away from the JCPOA, without laboring that point either, but it's worth mentioning, was precisely to try and then corner Iran to have to agree to a new JCPOA, which would have been extremely draconian, and they would ne knowing full well they wouldn't agree to it, and say, well, you're not prepared to agree to it, so we're just going to impose massive economic sanctions on you and try and overthrow the, the Tehran government and put in some Western sympathetic government in the process because they know full well they can't have a war with Iran. That's just not possible. But of course, the world's changed, and, and for all the reasons we know, it's not the same as it was in the past. But it's the same playbook that's been going on for decades, so nothing's changed. And that is a big concern I have, because ultimately, you know, the U.S. foreign policy, I, I don't doubt Trump wants to be out of, out of Syria. I don't doubt Trump has a lot of ideas, but at the moment, we're not seeing what Trump wants to, to happen happening. In fact, we're seeing the reverse with Bolton and other neocons running amok in US foreign policy and doing the same thing that when the Bush administration was doing it, people were going, I can't believe this is happening. And yet, because it's the Trump administration, they're trying to say, well, actually, that's not really what's happening. Well, unfortunately, that's exactly what's happening. Every time the maniacal mustache opens his mouth, terrible things happen geopolitically, Paul. Terrible, terrible things. Recently, we've seen the slowdown in, in, in North Korea. What is that really about? Okay, well, we, if, we go, if we go back 12 months ago, uh, without sort of plugging, uh, we t I talked in depth on the X-22 about this with Dave. It was the first interview I ever did. And I said, you know, at the time, there's never going to be a war with North Korea. It's absolutely not the case. Uh, there's a lot, you know, there's people inside the U.S. administration at that time who were baying for a war. They, they were desperate for it. It never happened. And I've always made the point that 
the U.S. was playing second fiddle to the Koreans, i.e. North and South and the Chinese, and to a latter extent, the Russians. And yes, I'm not saying that Trump by Trump. I mean, Trump canceled the trip to go to Singapore and then he was basically told you have to go. And that's why he changed his mind and went, OK, I'll, I'll listen to better reason and judgment. I need to go. And it was extremely important. He did. But he's gone along. He's had this discussion with Kim Jong-un. And in the process, they came to some agreement, which subsequently, and it, you don't expect these agreements to be implemented overnight, quite the contrary. But what is absolutely clear is that North Korea has got no intention of denuclearizing. North Korea is doing is doing precisely what it wants to do. And everyone's now blaming the Chinese, even Trump's got, well, they're under extreme duress from Beijing to do to, to do certain things. No, that was always the plan. North Korea and China and South Korea are going to get on with doing what they want to do. And it's why we've seen that the North and South Koreans wanted to uh, build a railway link. And the U.S. have tried to block that and tried to block it through the U.N. and say we're not allowing it to happen. They're complaining that the Chinese are you know, still uh, ignoring the sanctions on North Korea. They're threatening North Korea with more sanctions. And now, of course, we've had the thing where Pompeo you know, didn't want, to, didn't want to end up going to North Korea and has cancelled the meeting. It's because the realisation, the U.S. knows, they have no say in the region. It's the Chinese, it's the North and South Koreans who'll get on and make the changes. And they've essentially sidestepped the, U the US in the process. Now, I said all this, and it's on record, I've said it on here, I said it in, on, in great detail in different ways on our, our podcast subscription service, and explained this is exactly what was going on, exactly what would happen, and that's why the US effectively has no real say in what goes on in the Korean Peninsula. It's a shame because it could have worked out extremely well where Trump could have been part of the process, should have been part of the process. And, it, you know, it could have made a huge difference to the U.S.'s credibility on the world stage. I don't doubt that's exactly what Trump wanted to do. But now, you know, North Korea is distrustful of the U.S., not of Trump, I hasten to add. They publicly come out and said that. Their problem isn't Trump. Their problem is well, they didn't use the term neocon, but they used you know, terms that refer to them. That's China's problem, exactly, with, with that influence. And it's why, again, the, the U.S. having a trade war with China is one thing, but it's spilt over into matters relating to North Korea, and it's spilt over into other matters around the world. And, and you can't just you know, divorce yourself one from the other and say... Beijing's perspective, well, the US is playing, you know, these this trade war. Let's forget about these other problems. No. It just, you know, reinforces that lack of trust. And we've used that word many times before, but that's precisely the problem. It's a lack of trust. And it's why, you know, the Russians have a lack of trust in the US administration, not Trump. The Chinese don't have a problem per se with Trump, although his attitude towards the trade the trade war has been is his right has angered them. There's no, there's no doubt about it. He had no reason to do the things he did and just escalate the problem and the rhetoric. And some of the comments that have come out of the Chinese media have been frankly brutal. And China doesn't normally do that. So that precisely proves their anger with regards to the trade war. But they understand in principle that Trump is trying to drain the swamp, as we've said many times. That is exactly what he's trying to do. 
But in the process, his whole foreign policy is being hijacked. And consequently, nations are now saying, well, with regards to Korea, we'll, we'll, we'll resolve the problems. North and South Korea can resolve their difficulties and they can eventually unify some way down the track, which is exactly what they intend doing. And the Chinese will be in a supportive capacity and do things. And they turn around going, well, we can't really, we don't trust the US because they say one thing and do something different. You know, Trump comes here, says, okay, you know, I understand you're going to have to do, go through the process of denuclearizing. Okay, it's going to take time. And after about two months, elements within the US administration are foaming at the mouth that progress isn't happening at the rate they want to see it happen. And then consequently, they start saying, we're going to impose more sanctions on North Korea. We're going to maintain sanctions. And they do everything which is damaging all the good work Trump did in going to, to North Korea. But the truth is, and I, I come back to what I said a year ago, the U.S. has never had any real say in what's going on there. And it comes back to the point, the U.S. come in the room, nations talk to them, the U.S. thinks they know what's happening, they walk out the room and nations go, okay, so what are we actually going to do now? And then they go ahead and do what they want to do, and that is angering and riling Washington, who now know, we don't have control like we used to. We can't just go in and enforce things because why? It's rather like Syria. The Russians had Syria's back. Well, we've seen what's happened in Syria. And it's rather like North Korea. The Russians and the Chinese have their back and will protect them. And yes, there's no doubt China has been breaking uh, the, the sanctions embargo. And they turn around to the, the US and go, well, what are you going to do about it? And the answer is precisely nothing. Because they can't do anything. What are they going to do? Sanction China? I mean, I mean, they haven't even got that. Although, don't rule out out as being a possibility. But again, everything the good that Trump's trying to do, and I don't doubt it, is being severely damaged by the fact we have a foreign policy that's been dictated to by by you know neocon influences, and it's and it's crazy that you've got Pompeo who's allowed to go and deal with with the North Koreans, but we're not having him dealing with matters in Syria. No, and John Bolton's just carving up the world and doing things the way he wants to. And and Pompeo has really become just an ineffectual, you know, defense secretary who actually has no say in anything. He's just told what to do and where to go. And and then, you know, the next breath, well actually we're not having any more dealings with North Korea. We're cancelling this summit and this meeting. Again. A very very bad move because all it says to the North Koreans is, well, we we don't have any reason to trust you and we're not going to trust you. Therefore, we'll just carry on doing what we want to do. And in the process, it's having all these ramifications that you know don't extend past uh, the Koreans. It's also the Chinese and the Russians, and and it's a shame because I don't doubt Trump and Putin do have a good rapport. I don't doubt. The, you know, left to their own devices and if we didn't have all this other shenanigans and nonsense going on with the Mueller etc in the US then by now Russian US relations would have been very different and it would have made a huge difference to the US's position on the world stage but things are what they are and Russia has to deal with things as China does on what they see and what's happening and it comes back to the crunch point at some point you know whether it's after probably likely after the midterm if all things go go well, then the U.S. is going to have to start to make some serious moves uh, to, to demonstrate that they are dealing with problems. Because I don't really perceive that Russia and China are going to sit there and go, 
well, how much latitude are we going to give Trump before we just give up and go, well, he's not going to achieve his objectives. And uh, there are a number of things we need to do. But I, I get the impression that he's got till the midterms and then after that, but things will have to start to happen. So logically, I think you by the end of this year, if we haven't started to see some major developments in the US, and I'm not saying it's not going to happen, then I think China and Russia will have to look at things differently and say, okay, well, what are we going to do? Because the problem and the threat remains, and no matter what Trump's trying to do or we understand he's trying to, if he doesn't affect those changes, then we have to treat the administration as it behaves, and there's no other way to deal with the problem, unfortunately. Paul, the uh, ongoing drama, the soap opera, the never-ending collusion and Russia and all the other shenanigans here leading up to the midterms. What do you think is going to happen? What type of momentum do you see as someone who is uh, observing this whole entire circus? Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, I I mean, it's there's no doubt we've, we've said this all along that there's no substance to the Mueller investigation. There never has been since day one. It's the it's the one thing, you know, Sessions should never have allowed to ever happen. If he knew he was going to have to recuse himself, he should have sat down with um, Trump and said, look, I can't be the attorney general because I'm, I'm going to have to recuse myself over the Russian investigation. And therefore, that's going to compromise you as in terms of your administration. So let someone else be the, the attorney general who doesn't have to recuse himself. And therefore, the Mueller investigation would never have happened. But we know the Mueller investigations is fallen flat on its face. It, there's no there's no credibility to it. They're never going to find the collusion. If they haven't by now, they never will. But the problem we have is 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 what Sess- Sessions could do so much now to to rectify a lot of these problems. For example, you know where the obvious issues lie with Clinton, open reopen investigation, and actually have proper investigations done and not some whitewash that, that has happened previously. But he's not doing it. Now, it comes back to the point. He's going to have to start acting and doing his job. That's what the attorney general is supposed to do. Because if he did, it would make life a lot easier for Trump. But there is an argument that says, prior to the midterms, is it really the time to start ruffling those feathers? It could create a huge shitstorm which detracts from the election. And it may actually end up backfiring on, on, on Trump in the process. Because people might start going, oh, this is just, you know, opportunism or it'll be sold to people it's opportunism now i'm not saying everyone's going to believe it or anyone will believe it but that's the risk so the argument is after the midterm something major has got to happen including sessions and i think if sessions doesn't do something major by the end of this year he's going to get fired of that i have absolutely no doubt he'll be gone and then someone will come in who will deal with the problems but I'm not, I don't necessarily expect anything huge to happen before the midterms. I mean, we're talking a couple of months. But that said, the, there is no doubt that, that the weight of, of evidence against the whole Mueller investigation and the reality of what uh, unfolded is certainly becoming more and more in the public consciousness. And, and there's no doubt there's, at some point that dam's going to break now. It may break of its own accord prior to the elections, in which case, fine. I mean, we had that whole thing where there was the, the investigation into Clinton was opened up again before the, the actual presidential election. Okay, it fizzled out and died to death. 
rather rapidly for all the reasons we know. So we can't say there isn't any precedent for things to happen. And maybe it will happen. But the, the question is, who's going to make these things happen? And ultimately, Sessions has got to stand up and be counted and do the job he's supposed to do and make these things happen. Because that could go a long way to not only waking up anyone who isn't already awake in the US to the reality of what's gone on and why clearly there was attempts to do everything to impeach Trump, discredit him and, and prevent Trump foreign policy being enacted. Of that, there's no doubt. But the question is, does something happen before then? And I'm not convinced something will happen. But you can never rule it out because at some point the dam will break with this. And But are we likely to see huge seismic changes before the, the presidential midterms well i'm not i'm not convinced that will happen but what i would expect is if it all goes all things go you know being equal go well and and you know he wins by a landslide and he should do as we said before without unless we have some huge economic uh, financial event which we can't rule out either but if that doesn't happen he does then we should expect or the trump should then say okay we have the mandate we're not, we don't have a problem. So get on and deal with these problems and start, you know, opening up indictments, whatever they may be, and start dealing with and having proper investigations into the, the people who are responsible for what's going on in this country instead of laying the blame on, on the Trump administration and Trump himself in some vain attempt to, to get him impeached and thrown out of office, which I don't see happening in any way, shape or form. But if he loses the midterms, then it could be a very, very, very very different situation happening in in the u.s but we we can only follow what happens on a week by week month by month basis but the problem is it's back to the thing we have to set expectation and people are keep being believing oh something's going to happen something's going to happen well yes it will but let's wait and see when it actually happens instead of setting expectations because i know people have got in touch with me saying well we, you know, we have expectations, things are going to happen. I keep telling people and then nothing happens and they go, see, well, you're just, you're just a conspiracy theorist. Nothing's happening. Why are you telling me all these things? And it never happens. Well, that's the problem. If you set people's expectations, things are going to happen and you, you try to convince them and it doesn't, then you do damage your, your own credibility in trying to explain things. So the best thing to say is, yeah, things will happen. There, there isn't a time frame that I'm aware of. And, and, and history's proved that, that there isn't a time scale that's when things will happen. But put it this way, if things don't happen after the midterms and Trump's successful, then you have to seriously start to question what is actually going on in his administration. I can see the caution of not doing something beforehand. And the argument is, how important is it to Trump to just get through the elections, you know, steer the, 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 you know, the course of the ship smoothly, do what he did well, to get elected in the first place, reinforce that, you know, go on on the campaign trail, which I understand he's going to do in a major way from now until the midterm, secure that, then he's got the basis to go on and do what really needs to be done. But he may see otherwise, and there may be an opportun opportunity to to uh, to you know enact something. But I don't see anything at the moment that's going to change that unless someone like Sessions stands up and says, okay that's it, enough's enough, I'm going to start taking action. And is there any reason to believe he will do that at the moment? Well, I'm not seeing any, anything to, to, and to suggest he will do that. And I think ultimately, without saying it all rests on his shoulders, but he could be 
a huge catalyst to make those necessary changes. And uh, the question is, when's he going to do it or is he going to do it at all? And then that will answer everyone's question about who this man is and what his real intentions are and how much he really cares about the US and the people, you know, who live there. Very well said. Paul, got five minutes. Uh, how do you want to close out, man? With your last uh, remaining comments. I think I think something worth talking about uh, with regards to Germany that hasn't largely been just, and it's not won't take too long to to discuss it. But um, we've spoken a lot in the past about how weak uh, Merkel is, and what we're actually seeing is, uh, and hasn't been largely reported in the West, is there's been. There's be, it's being dubbed in, in the German media as being these far-right riots. It's in the town of Chemnitz, which is in the old East East Germany, as it were. It's in the eastern part of, of unified Germany, but it's in the old part of East Germany. And it's interesting that the, the social um, Democrats, the SPD party, uh, are saying, you know, that the, the country's office for the protection of the constitution needs to investigate links between this AFD party and right-wing extremists. And they've been saying that the AFD is co cooperating with neo-Nazis and, and they're plotting to overthrow Germany's constitutional law. To well, I strongly refute that's the case. I'm not in any way saying who's taking part in these rights, but to call for that sort of collusion between a political party and extremists is pretty damning of how how the German um, po political system is falling apart. And the AFD are gathering more and more support. But these demonstrations, um, which apparently it was, in, it was originally inspired by this alleged murder of a German by two foreigners in Chemnitz. Now, you can argue, say, that was just um, you know, opportunism, but then there's all clashes with the police. And yes, there were some of these these um, anti-Nazi protesters and civilians. And yes, it has got rather ugly and the demonstrations have become huge. But what it's indicative of is that Germany's in serious political upheaval. And there's no doubt there is a drift to the right and you can, however you want to phrase the AFD, because they're very anti-immigration. So they're being portrayed as being, you know, having very right uh, policies. But it's indicative of the fact that Germany as a political union is falling apart and the AFD is gaining strength and these demonstrations have occurred. The question is, are they likely to spread to other parts of Germany? And, but I think this is indicative of, of another example of the demise and end of, of Merkel. I don't think Merkel's got particularly long left as the Chancellor. I think they'll force her to resign because they can't allow these kind of... It's not a question of stopping a demonstration whether it's legitimate or otherwise, it's just the, the message it sends to, to Germany as a whole that this is how, you know, effectively uh, nations, chancellors, etc., end up losing their power because they've got weaker through a coalition government that can't agree on anything. And you've got what they call these populist parties and the AFD, you can call them what you like, but they do have a lot of support and Germans have got rather fed up with um, the anti-immigration policy or the lack of immigration policy, and, and therefore it's it's feeding these kind of uh, demonstrations, but they've been huge, it's been enormous demonstrations in, in this uh, city. And uh, But, you know, 
And the problem is, though, even the SPD, as much as they're calling for uh, for this these, these investigations into the AFD, they're actually saying the same breath. You know, we have to have this uh, a migration policy that needs to be legislated and and we have to protect the EU's external borders and blah, 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 to deal with this internal problem. So they're acknowledging there is an internal problem that needs to be dealt with. But I think the fact they're lashing out against the AFD is demonstrating that there's huge fear that, that the uh, German political system is falling apart. And I don't doubt in the force in the not too distant future that Merkel will finally fall on her sword and uh, she'll be the end of her chancellorship. And I think once she's gone, then we'll start to see even bigger changes in how Germany integrates into what I've called the Berlin, uh, Moscow, Beijing, Eurasian axis, which is the backbone of the new multipolar world. And I think we'll see more and more of that happening. But it's worth mentioning the fact that this demonstration happening because I think it's indicative of a far bigger political meltdown that's happening in Germany and, and the fear from the traditional parties with regards to the likes of the AFD just really fuels the fact that they're recognising that the that the end of the road's coming and a new political system is going to be born in Germany and it's going to be without Merkel, who frankly has been a major problem for Europe as a whole and and a serious roadblock in terms of because of her alliance, alliance and allegiances to to the Washington Beltway, effectively. Absolutely. Paul, with that being said, man, thank you so much for being on and uh, sharing all this with us. Uh, folks, again, check him out, theseriousreport.com. Subscribe to him, uh, folks, over at theseriousreport.com. For less than a price of a latte, you're going to get the play-by-play of what's going on geopolitically. With that being said, we're over and out. Take it away, CJ.